Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is April 9th, 2020, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is, I Want a Dog to Relieve My Stress in the Emergency Department. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Justin Morgenstern. He is an emergency physician and creator of the excellent FOMED project, First 10 EM. Thanks, Justin, for taking some time during this COVID pandemic to record another SGEM odd off the press. Yeah, Ken, these are definitely some busy times right now, but a paper about decreasing stress in the, in, while working in the emergency department, that couldn't be timelier. At least in my experience, uh, stress is at an all-time high right now, and we need every resource available to us. Well, you and a number of other great FOMED sites have been putting out some really excellent COVID content. So I'm not putting out COVID content currently. I'm sticking to doing a structured critical review of a recent publication to cut that KT window down from over 10 years to less than one year. Yeah, I think it's true. We need a break from COVID. There's just too much of it. But I do think this COVID has highlighted that really, really the power of foam because information has been able to spread so fast. I've been able to learn from colleagues in Italy, uh, in China, and now in New York City. And instead of everyone having to invent everything on their own, their own intubation procedures, their own code blue procedures, we've been able to share and improve on each other's resources. You know, I, I don't think I would have been able to survive the last month without the incredible work of people like Josh Farkas over at the Internet Book of Critical Care or Salim at Rebel EM or Anton at EM Cases, the crew at Phonecast, St. Ambulance. This list is just way too long to name everybody. But we are so much better off because of the tremendous work that these people have done on our behalf. I agree. They've been fantastic in keeping us up to date on current uh, research, current evidence, and the protocols as they change. But this isn't a COVID-19 episode. But is there anything you want to say to the SGMers before we get started? Yeah, you know, times are definitely tough right now. It can be a little bit hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel. But I know that everybody listening is incredibly well-trained, dedicated, and passionate. And as hard as it seems, I know that together, we're going to get through this and we're going to come out stronger on the other side. In the meantime, make sure you look after yourself, your colleagues, and your family. We're all in this together. We are all in this together. So stay safe, wash your hands, and stay home. All right, start our podcast off with a case. So it's been a very hard shift. You wish you could say uncharacteristically, but recently all your shifts have been a little bit hard. The increased workload due to COVID-19 has not been helping. You sit down to chart after a difficult resuscitation, and the charge nurse, seeing that you look a little bit stressed, asks if you'd like to take a break to play with a dog. Well, medicine is an incredibly rewarding profession. However, it's also undeniably marked by significant levels of stress. Reports of burnout are high across medicine and even higher in emergency medicine. A study of U.S. physicians showed that there were more than 50% with at least one symptom of burnout, and emergency physicians reported the highest prevalence of burnout at around 70%. Yeah, burnout is associated with the loss of empathy and compassion towards patients, decreased job satisfaction, and shorter careers in medicine. It's also been associated with negative impacts on patient care, including self-perceived medical error, risks of medical error, and quality of care. We've covered a burnout a few times on the SGEM, including my own personal experience of being on the edge of burnout. 
and I'll list those past episodes in the show notes. There is some prior literature that exposure to animals decreases stress. Theoretically, time spent deliberately coloring as a mindfulness practice could also decrease stress. Therefore, these authors designed a prospective randomized trial comparing the effects of dog therapy, deliberate coloring, and control on stress levels for emergency department providers. So what's the clinical question, Justin? Does dog therapy result in lower perceived stress than deliberate coloring or control when applied as a break during an emergency department shift? And what's the reference? This is Klein et al., randomized trial of therapy dogs versus deliberate coloring art therapy to reduce stress in emergency medicine providers, AEM, hot off the press, April 2020. Let's run through that, Pico. What was the population? So these are emergency care providers, which included nurses, residents, and physicians from a single uh, emergency department. And they excluded people who didn't like dogs, allergy to dogs, fear, or other reasons not to interact with a therapy dog. What was the actual intervention? So there were two interventions, which occurred approximately midway through the provider's shift. Dog therapy consisted of an interaction with a therapy dog, which providers could pet or touch as they wished. The coloring group was provided with three mandalas to choose to color and a complete set of coloring pencils. Both of these activities occurred in a quiet room, physically separated from the clinical care area, with no electronic devices, telephone, window, or overhead speaker. And what did they compare it to? They compared it to a convenient sample of providers that were not offered any break. All right, let's run through their outcomes. What was the primary outcome? There were two primary outcomes. The first was a self-assessment of stress using a visual analog scale. The second was a 10-point validated perceived stress score altered to focus on the past several hours rather than months as it was originally designed. Both were measured at the beginning of the shift, about 30 minutes after the intervention and near the end of the shift. And how about the secondary outcomes? So they also looked at a uh, FACES scale as a measure of stress and provider cortisol levels. Well, that's the PICO, but this is also, as mentioned, a hot-off-the-press episode, which means we have the lead author on the show. Dr. Jeff Klein is the Vice Chair of Research in Emergency Medicine and a Professor of Physiology, Indiana University School of Medicine. He's the Editor-in-Chief of Academic Emergency Medicine, creator of the PERC rule, and has published extensively in the area of pulmonary emboli. Welcome to the SGM, Jeff. Well, thanks, Ken, and hi, Justin. It's great to be here. I know it seems a little weird for a PE guy to be talking about dogs, but what got me interested in this is the relationship that really forms the ability to make a good diagnosis. Well, it's good to see you again, uh, Jeff. I have to tell you, this has to be the favorite article that I've read in the last year. And, and I, I think we can all admit that it's probably not the kind of study that you expect to see just flipping through an emergency medicine uh, journal. Kudos to you for coming up with such an interesting study topic. Yeah, I know it's a little weird because, you know, like I said, I'm interested in diagnosis. So why should a dude that's interested in improving the diagnosis of a fatal disease, be interested in putting dogs in the emergency department. And uh, I think I have some reasons for that. And part of it is that really diagnosis is about a relationship. It's about trust and it's about getting the right information. So I've been interested in for years in how dogs, which 
about 85% of people acknowledge that they like can help bring us closer together and, and sort of help us feel better and be able to ask questions in really non-judgmental and human way. A criticism that medicine often receives is that we often use pharmaceuticals for treatment. And so I thought this was a fantastic paper to show that we could do stress reduction using a therapy dog, very similar to the previous episode we did on coloring to decrease anxiety in our patients. So Jeff, you're the lead author. Can you give the actual conclusions to your study? This randomized controlled clinical trial demonstrates preliminary evidence that a five-minute therapy dog interaction while on shift can reduce provider stress in emergency department physicians and nurses. All right, Justin, let's go through the quality checklist for RCTs. The first question is, the study population, did it include or focused on those in the emergency department? Yes, it did. The patients, were they adequately randomized? We'll say no, the control group was a convenient sample. How about the randomization process? Was it concealed? Unsure. The patients, were they analyzed into the groups which they were randomized? Yes. The study patients were recruited consecutively? No, so recruitment was based on the availability of the therapy dogs. And the patients in both groups were similar with respect to prognostic factors? We'll give this an unsure. I'm honestly not sure what prognostic factors should have been considered. I guess perhaps they could have asked if people were more cat people than dog people. The seventh question, all participants were unaware of group allocation. Uh, Nope. The groups were treated equally except for the intervention. Yes, they were. Was the follow-up complete? Yes. Do you think all patient important outcomes were considered? We gave this a yes within the limits of the trial. Long-term outcomes are probably more important than just stress levels on the shift. And the final question, the 11th question, the treatment effect, was it large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? We'll say unsure and get back to it. All right, let's go through the key results. They enrolled 127 providers, but five withdrew because they thought their shift was just too busy to participate. About half were resident physicians. 23% were attending physicians, and 30% were nurses. They were most frequently enrolled during an evening shift. All right, how about that primary outcome? So stress based on the visual analog scale was the same in all three groups at the beginning of the shift, about 18 millimeters, but rose in the coloring group and fell in the dog group. And they had that second primary outcome, and that was stress based on the validated stress score rose in the control group, but otherwise was not statistically significant. And there were a couple secondary outcomes. Maybe the most interesting was the cortisol. So in all three groups, cortisol levels were the highest at the beginning of the shift and decreased over time. The cortisol fell more in both of the intervention groups. Okay, those are the key results. It's time to talk nerdy with Jeff Klein. You ready to answer our nerdy questions, Jeff? I'm ready. All right. So the first question is allocation concealment. Allocation concealment is one of those EBM terms that we throw around a lot, but it isn't often discussed. It's really important because if you can guess which group you're going to be in, it might affect your decision to join the study. For example, in this study, if I thought I was going to be in the dog group, 
I would definitely say yes. But I have no interest really in coloring, so probably would have said no. Can you comment on your allocation concealment procedures and whether you think they were adequate? Well, one of the key things we did was make sure that no one saw that a dog was walking around in the department beforehand. So our volunteer handlers had to keep their dogs outside of the emergency department. And remember, these, these folks are just volunteers and they do a great job. But um, they're used to bringing these dogs out and making people happy. So to help with this research, they had to be part of the conspiracy. They had to bring the dogs in and hide them. So whenever someone got randomized, at the moment they got randomized, they did not know what they were going to get, whether it was going to be coloring or whether it was going to be dog. I'll talk in a minute about why we did the control group separately in the nocebo effect. But I can tell you one thing. When people got randomized to coloring, they were not happy. <laughs> I think that mirrors my uh, question, doesn't it? Exactly. They wanted a dog. So you already mentioned it, but our question number two is about the nocebo and the convenient sample of the control group. So first of all, I have to say the idea of nocebo is just fascinating, and it would be great if you could explain your logic for not randomizing the control group to listeners. And then in a second, I guess I do worry about the convenient sample as a source of bias. The study's objective wasn't blinded, so it is possible that the convenient sample could have been selected on particularly stressful days or particularly not stressful days, which would impact the results. Yeah, this is a question about limitations versus weaknesses. It's going to be a limitation when you have a control group no matter what. But I think it would have been a bigger weakness to have had an absolute control group randomized in a triple fashion. First of all, it would have really prolonged the study a long time, which would have been difficult for our handlers to be able to deal with our dog handlers because we would have had to stretch this thing out over approximately a year so that we would not have had repeat um, participants in the study. But um, from a nocebo effect, when a person is re- receives nothing, it can lead to a neurochemical response that is excessively negative. So we really wanted the control group to represent true wild type. I mean, people that didn't think they had any chance of anything. So we had a better idea of what people look like when they didn't think they had a chance at either coloring or the dog. I mean, you could argue it should have been done one way or the other, but at least I present the reason why we thought that the control group was better separated from the two intervention groups randomized. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful practical answer because you can imagine waking up Christmas morning and opening your present that you thought you were getting a puppy and there's nothing in the box. That's not the same as waking up any other day of the, uh, the year. It, it, I, I can see the, the logic there. Yeah, maybe I can say another way. You had a present. It was either going to be a dog, which you really wanted, or maybe it was going to be a piece of art, which is cool, but you know you kind of didn't really want that. You wanted the dog, or you got nothing, an empty box. And the empty box can lead to emotional and neurochemical reactions that are part of the nocebo effect, which is relatively profound, and it's kind of fun to read about. 
Well, thanks for explaining that trade-off because when you're designing methodologies for a study, it is usually a trade-off and you probably would have been called out for the limitations of doing it the other way. Right. I think if we had a control group in the triple randomization, we would have seen an even bigger difference and people would have said, oh, the control patients were really pissed. I think this way it tells a little closer version of the truth. And the version of the truth is if you do anything to help stress coloring or dogs, it helps a little bit. Probably the biggest take-home message from this study comes from what we did not measure, and that was the comments of the individuals who participated, which maybe we can talk about later. Sure. The third point is one of the ones that I often bring up, and this is about two primary outcomes. And this paper had two co-primary outcomes. But as we frequently say on the SGEM from the movie Highlander, There can be only one. Perhaps you as the editor and uh, chief of academic emergency medicine can settle this one for us. Are you really allowed to have more than one primary outcome? I don't know why not if they're closely linked and they make sense at your targets. I mean, a lot of times we want to reduce pain and anxiety. We don't want to just do one thing for people. So I'm being pedantic. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Maybe you're being Canadian. (laughs) You want to be true to science. Sorry, then. Before, Before a war breaks out, maybe I'll move on to question number four, statistical versus clinical significance. So overall, the results here suggest a statistical decrease in stress in the group exposed to dogs. However, it's unclear whether the magnitude of the change was large enough to be noticeable. Do you, do you think these results were clinically significant? I don't think that if you look at those graphs, if you look at the real data, there wasn't a big difference between coloring and dogs, either in cortisol change or what the providers reported. And unless you look at that visual analog scale, which tended to go up with the coloring Again, I'm going to get back to something. When we do a research experiment, we know what the right thing to do was at the end. What we measured had a mild and potentially significant improvement with the dogs compared with placebo, and maybe a little bit improved over coloring. But there was a qualitative part of this that we captured to some extent The providers loved the dogs. They hated the coloring. That was clear from their verbal comments to us. And we did capture those and report those in the study. The fifth question is about blinding. And obviously, it's essentially impossible to blind a study like this. But the lack of blinding does make it harder to interpret the subjective feelings of stress. It is possible that people just like dogs. And who doesn't? And the lower scores don't really reflect stress. Right. And another point of this is a disappointment. People don't want to disappoint a dog. (laughs) There's some cool research about the fact that people don't want to look sad to a dog. They just don't want to disappoint animals. And it may be totally 
unexpected effects that isn't really that they're feeling better, that they just want everyone to think they are. So maybe we need to get everybody a dog at home, not just in the hospital, which maybe ties into question number six, short versus long-term outcomes. So you focused on same-day stress, but presumably for burnout, long-term outcomes would be more important. So do you think these results will extrapolate to longer-term benefits? Uh, Having a dog on shift, mm, it might if we did reliably. If you knew you could show up and you're like, you know what a cool part of my shift is going to be? I'm going to go get a nice cold drink of water. I'm going to get my Diet Coke. Or I'm going to take a a 10-second stroll out of the emergency department. Or I know I'm going to get to pet Rex. And Rex makes me happy. And yes, we do have a therapy dog named Rex, and his handler is Joe. And I just love it, Joe (laughs) and Rex. So I think over the long term, if we consistently had the belief when we were driving into our shift that we're going to get to work with our favorite crew and we're going to get, you know, a good set of patients, whatever that is, and maybe I get to see a dog over the long term, that could matter. I really don't think that everyone would be psyched to go to shift to say, I get to take a break and color a Mandela. I'm going to carry on with number seven, and this was about language. I noticed that one of the coloring options had some crude language. It said, F this. And I found that message actually funny, and it would have lifted my spirits on shift if I was sitting there coloring this nice little calligraphy thing that said, F this. I thought it originally said shift, but it says some other S word. But I can imagine problems if this completed picture, the nurses pinned it up to the board or something and patients saw it as they walked by. They might not understand that emergency providers often have dark humor. Well, Ken, I think you're really nailing something that's actually part of the science. And This is just sort of beyond uh, a sense of humor. And it's about having cultural sensitivity and ethnography of emergency care. I mean, there's evidence that people use profanity to help cope with the situation in emergency care. I mean, you know, willful non-adherence, patients that are abusive, consultants that don't want to take care of patients, I'm just dealing with the stresses in emergency care. What that first Mandela says is a visual representation of what you hear people say in the emergency department. So we thought that it was an important subtext to put that one in there to see if people chose it more than the other two. And indeed, they did. Now, what does that tell us scientifically? It tells us a little bit about how we deal with stress in emergency care. Well, we'll include a copy of that uh, design that people can color later on their own if they choose to. (laughs) And hopefully they won't say that about this study. We'll move on because we don't want uh, Ken to lose his G rating. Uh, Question number eight is about harms from dogs and whether we consider the potential for harms from these interventions. Now, 
you did let participants opt out if they had dislike or fear or allergies to dogs. But personally, I gotta tell you, I love dogs, but I'm also incredibly allergic. So I can imagine ignoring my allergies to play with a dog in the middle of the shift but then regretting that choice and having increased stress as I manage my remaining patients with incredibly itchy eyes and an endlessly runny nose. Yeah, Justin, that goes back to the fact that I think you would probably even suffer your own physical suffering in order to please the dog and also your own amygdala, your own emotional system. And I think that goes back to people will probably do this, maybe even if they don't want to. The, the biggest thing that we've seen from asking individuals what would make them not want to interact with a dog is the death of their own dog in recent years. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, that's the thing that, that is the surprising finding. People can be made very sad by seeing another dog. And it can take years, years, maybe even decades to get over that loss. That's an incredibly important insight because almost anything that you think of, you're just trying to make people happy, can have unintended unintended consequences or or harms. that's That's a great insight. My final question is about scheduling the intervention versus stress relief PRN or on demand. And in this study, the intervention was scheduled for a specific time mid-shift. And emergency shifts aren't very sort of amenable to strict scheduling. In fact, when someone tries to schedule something at a specific time during one of my shifts, it tends to increase my stress. I wonder whether interventions like this would be more effective if they were available when the provider felt they needed them, such as after a stressful resuscitation. You mentioned in the discussion section, can you describe what you think is the ideal setup for a program like this? You know what would be perfect is if we had like a little fence somewhere in the emergency department. And that little fence was about six or seven puppies that everyone could go and pet when they needed to. Dog on demand would be the perfect situation. Now, how can we get closer to that? Well, there's at least 100,000 volunteer therapy dogs and handlers around the United States. And when I say the dogs are volunteering, I think they are, but uh, you know, I, know the vol- I know the handlers are. And they are willing to be around at least in daylight hours. And of course, this is a problem at night because dogs sleep at night. They are not they, they are not nocturnal. And um, I think that the situation needs to be where the dog can be there for the providers and the patients on demand. Dog on demand is what I learned from this study. Nobody wants a scheduled break. They want it when they need it. Yeah, if, if I had my way, we would just end the podcast right there. Dog on demand is maybe the greatest concept that I've ever heard. But you know, Ken, he needs to have that nice, even number 10. We can't just stop at question number nine. So we'll move on to question number 10, which is about the treatment effect. And you've already sort of mentioned this, but we did say you had two primary outcomes and they did show different results. So which one should the yes gemmers believe? I think what I would say is believe both of them. Like, like many things, it made one dimension better and another one that didn't really help that much. 
I think importantly, I would say these dogs didn't cause harm. They didn't make things worse. No one had a terrible allergy. No one said they didn't want to see the dog again. And in general, they move things in the right direction. At least it sets up the hypothesis that if we can bring dogs in and we can do the rigorous science needed, we might be able to show more improvement if dogs are available when the providers want them and also simultaneously to the patients who are willing and interested in seeing canines. Human-animal interaction has a lot, a long way to go before we really understand its full potential. Well, those are our... Oh, hey, Moxie, my dog's here. <laughs> You're a cat. <laughs> it's very meta. Yeah, a dog or somebody just went by the window. Well, those were our 10 nerdy points. Now it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. So we agree that this study represents preliminary evidence that a brief interaction with a dog can reduce stress on shift, but more research is required to confirm the effect, to look at long-term benefits of such a program, and to determine whether the magnitude of the effect is worth the costs or potential harms. And can you give us an SGEM bottom line, Justin? And novel approaches to managing stress and burnout are welcomed in emergency medicine. If you like dogs, we encourage you to maximize the joy in your life and play with a dog whenever possible. Dog therapy during emergency shifts is promising, but at this point probably needs to be considered unproven. And can you resolve the case that you presented? Yeah, you are thrilled to take the opportunity to take a few minutes away from the emergency department. You've been trying to teach your residents for years that short breaks are important, both for your own health, but also to help let you concentrate on your next patients. The ability to play with a dog is just an added bonus, and it keeps you off Twitter for those five minutes. All right, how about the clinical application then? I mean, I don't think that hospitals should be rushing to start dog therapy programs yet. However, if they're already in place for patients, making them available to the staff just makes sense. And what do you tell the staff then? Yeah, we have to talk about stress. Stress is a huge problem in emergency medicine, especially right now. You don't need to play with a dog, but you absolutely need to take breaks and look after yourself. This is so you're able to provide the best care to patients based on the best evidence. All right, for the Keener contest, there was no winner last week. The question was, where was the first emergency ultrasound training site? And the answer that we found was the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee was the first emergency ultrasound fellowship training site. It was started in the early 1990s by Dr. James Mater, and he trained the first three fellows in what is now termed clinical ultrasound. And the number of clinical ultrasound fellowship programs exploded and grew to over 100 sites across North America. So what question do you have for this week, Justin? Yeah, so everybody's been talking about anosmia as a possible symptom for COVID, so I've been thinking about smells. I was wondering if it could happen to dogs as well. I'll tell you, the average human has 6 million olfactory receptors. The question is, approximately how many does a dog have? Well, if you know how many olfactory receptors a dog has, then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. Well, now it's your term, SGMers. What do you think of this episode that has clearly gone to the dogs? 
Tweet your comments using hashtag SGEMHOP. What questions do you have for Jeff and his team? Ask them on the SGEM blog. The best social media feedback will be published in AEM. Also, don't forget, those of you who are subscribers to Academic Emergency Medicine can head over to the AEM homepage to get CME credits for this podcast and article. The process is up on the SGEM blog. All right, Justin, that's it. I'm just going to tell you, stay safe there, buddy. Stay safe. Thanks. Stressful times, but absolutely. You too and everybody out there, uh, stay safe. Look after yourselves. What helps me get through this is a lot of my FOMED friends, and I really appreciate it, and I really appreciate what you do for the FOMED world. So thanks. And thanks, Jeff. Uh, Any words about COVID-19 from the editor-in-chief of AEM? Yeah, I think if you've got a dog, go give that dog a hug. And if you don't, uh, they're very easy to adopt. And let me uh, throw a shout out to Kim Van Risen, my second author on this work who did a majority of the work. And I love you, Kim. Uh, She's working millions of shifts because of COVID. And I'm sorry she couldn't be on this episode, but I want to give all of the recognition to Kim that she deserves on the work she did. Well, thanks, Jeff. Uh, There's one last task. You need to read the SGEM tagline in your best American accent. (laughs) It's going to be Southern American. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Oh, talk to you all next week. I want to talk.